Welcome to Gears Action Growth, shifting business culture one conversation at a time. My name is Christine Murray, and I usually join Dr. Josephine Palermo, who superpowers to create business cultures that transform organizations team by team. But in this episode, Josephine actually interviews Dr. Ian Butterworth, who's back on the show, and they discuss human connection to spaces and what companies and governments need to know to rethink how we create different spaces for a post-COVID world. Hope you get value from it. Hey, Ian, how are you? Good to see you, Josie. Oh, it's so good to have you back. I know that um, uh, we had a bit of a discussion last time about doubt and uncertainty, and I loved that conversation. So I thought I have to have another conversation with my fratello, Ian, because you're um, always insightful. And I know that you and I have lots of conversations anyway, so I thought we might as well do a podcast, another podcast episode. So, <laughs> so thank you, Ian. Um, and how are you? Where are you today? I'm in Jajawarong, uh, Tangarong land uh, in central Victoria, and I'd like to pay my respects to the Tangarong peoples of the Kulin Nation. That's the traditional land on, from where I'm speaking to you. Fabulous. Thank you for doing that, Ian. And um, we're, uh, for those of you elsewhere in the world, we're in Melbourne, uh, Victoria. We are in over 200 days of lockdown, not all at once, but this is lockdown number six. And the whole country is pretty much in lockdown because we're we're battling um, the Delta variant of COVID-19. And so um, we are all hanging in there, but obviously there's a lot of um, anxiety and worry and a lot of uncertainty in the in the future, and particularly for business owners. I mean, I'm a business owner too. A lot of uncertainty. So, um, so my thoughts go out to everyone who's currently dealing with all of that, um, and um, hopefully we can give you a little bit of a reprieve by getting getting us talking about maybe something that that we can um, that will help us for the future, and particularly today. I wanted to talk about really how our sense of place or our connection to place is changing due to the pandemic. And um, I was recently looking at the vacancy rates, particularly in Australian cities, uh, in CBD, in, in, in commercial buildings. And, you know, we see vacancy rates of around 20, you know, 5, 26% in Melbourne. It's a little bit, um, a little bit lower in other um, major cities in Australia, but, you know, hitting that sort of 20% or, or a 25%. And so, so it got me thinking about particularly what are the opportunities that we can imagine through repurposing these spaces? What will our cities evolve into? Um, and, and wouldn't it be sad if we didn't take the opportunity, in fact? And, and particularly if people continue to work from home, what do we need to consider about that? You know, I think that we've, I've been helping a lot of organisations really think about, you know, how to create hybrid workplaces, how to manage, you know, people working from home and in the office going forward. But but what do we really need to think about, um, particularly in the, work, in the way that we connect to place? And if we did consider that, would we do things differently? So in particular, you know, how does it, what, what does it mean for how we reconceptualize the home, for example? And so, Ian, you are the absolute expert in this area because I know that you've been thinking and researching and talking and applying concepts of place identity in the work that you do, particularly around healthy cities, um, 
for and you've been doing that for decades. So I thought, who better to answer my questions about this and have a chat about maybe some ideas than Dr. Ian Butterworth. So, so over to you, Ian. Maybe we could start by um, perhaps you giving us a sense of what it what it means. You know, what does place identity actually mean? Okay. Um, when we talk about sense of place, sense of place is um, it's used a lot in Western culture. You know, it's used to sell everything from package holidays. You know, go to go to Bali or go to Thailand and come to this unspoilt place that offers you this sense of you know unique experience. Um, it's also used to sell real estate here in Australia. Um, developers are still selling agricultural land at the edge of our cities and saying buy your house and land package and sort of experience sense of place and they often have pictures of little blonde girls blowing dandelions and promising trains and schools and shops and (laughs) parks but oftentimes that's the last thing people experience what they experience is loneliness social isolation a lack of facilities, um, and they often they're often confined to the edge of a sprawling metropolis, uh, and they're very lonely and spend all their time travelling to uh, a job that's a long way away. Um, so it's a sense of place is often <clears throat> offered to us as a sort of tantalising vision, <clears throat> but. Um, how we experience places may be very different from the spin. And what researchers have been doing for quite a while now is to unpack this term, sense of place, um, and to actually try to provide some rigour to it. I'll start by one of the definitions that entranced me um, many years ago when I started researching place for my PhD. And this came from a guy called Michael Jacobs. And he argues that sense of place is a very deep human trait. It's a very deep human need or requirement for living a good life. He says, people don't look out over a landscape and say, this belongs to me. They say, I belong to this. That's a very different take on the Western notions of buying property and buying land and owning stuff. It is. It's much more of an indigenous First Nations perspective where um, there's a sense of being owned by the place and actually having duties to perform or having a kind of tribal responsibility for looking after that place, for caring for country, as we say, uh, as Aboriginal people say in this country. Um, Jacobs goes on to say, concerned concerned for familiar topography for the place's one knows is not about a loss of commodity but about a loss of identity people belong in the world it gives them a home and uh i i I loved that definition because it kind of it reflected my own experience as a migrant to to australia and moving around australia trying to find a place where i felt where i belonged and i fitted and um moving to Melbourne after living in many different cities was my sense of my experience of arriving somewhere where I felt I fitted in immediately. There was a sense of familiarity, of intimacy. I loved the the um 
the way that our streetscapes and villages were designed. I love the intimacy that the trams provide. I love the shops and all of those things and the very diverse activities that people were uh, engaged in in those places. And at that time, Melbourne was still had a very thriving local shopping culture where with a lot of um, sole businesses selling things that they'd made. I, I think I think we've been swept up since then in the sort of prepackaged uh, big box retail experience and the branding that's happened with high streets all around the world becoming very homogenous with sort of outlets of um, big chains. But when I came to Melbourne, I had a very strong reaction and that was my sense. I felt like I belong to this. Um, and Ian, just interrupting you, I actually feel that in, on di- in, at different parts of Melbourne. I feel that, for example, I live in the inner north and I love living there because I feel that. I feel that it the, 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 the space around me, the built environment around me echoes my values, my story. There's a lot of migrant shops there. I've got three Mediterranean supermarkets where you can go and the, the women and I can speak Italian to them still. So it's all of that, isn't it? Yes. And I mean, um, there's, it's places are more just backdrops to where we live our lives. We actually, we interweave our biographies with those places. Um, you know, we, we had our first kiss under the clock at the railway station. Um, the, the little old lady down the street um, looked after us and when we were children and gave us sweets or, um, you know, we our stories are woven into the fabric of places um and so when a when a building is suddenly disappears um there's this sense of loss i I don't know if this happens to you josie but i i walk through places and i think there's a hole in the ground i think what used to be there There yes shop there what was what was that and i have this vague sense of loss but i can't even remember what was there that's right it's a feeling you get and and you know i had that visceral feeling when you reminded me that the greyhound hotel is gone because i remember being there with you and having such great times with you and it was it was this great place to just express yourself and be free and it's gone i couldn't believe it and I mean, that's a whole other discussion. But in this country, I think it's a colonial culture. Anything older than 100 years gets a heritage order slapped on it. Unless, of course, it's indigenous when it's it's blown up to sell iron ore. Um, but uh, we have these heritage rules that seem to apply a sort of very quaint notion of aesthetics on top of something something often only has heritage status if it's deemed to be pretty or attractive and i think the thing about places is something doesn't have to be pretty to be significant um the greyhound you know it 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 was a an art deco 1920s hotel it wasn't in great condition but my goodness there were so many stories about that place and it was a it was a meeting place it was a landmark for me when I took the tram from the city back to my neighbourhood, when uh, when the tram turned left into my street, it went past the Greyhound and I knew that I was home. And it was sort of like the gateway to my village. Um, but it was knocked down because it was not considered to be of sufficient architectural merit. Um, but when it was knocked down, people were grieving that people went to collect bricks from the rubble 
to take home as a memento of the life that they'd lived there, you know, or the life they'd experienced there. And I, I think that's that's what sense of place is for me. It, it's not about beauty necessarily. It's about marking our territory. It's about linking us to our sense of belonging. Um, and the researchers have gone on to unpack sense of place and looking at a few things. And bear with me. One of them is called place attachment. So sense of place, is it's almost like an umbrella term for these component parts that fit in. And one of them is place attachment. So that's the, that's about our emotional bonding to a place and our what they call behavioral commitment. It's about we act to preserve that place. We, we do things that maintain it, that, that keep it fresh and vibrant. The other part of it is place identity. And I think this is really important because here it's about we identify ourselves with that place and we also identify our tribe with that place. Um, and it's a very deep human trait. But the other thing that really interests me about place identity is that some researchers, and I guess this takes us on a very deep philosophical dive, which I won't go into, but, you know, researchers and indigenous peoples would argue that places have their own identity and it's up to humans to experience, to interpret that, to notice it, to interpret it and to build our culture around that. Um, and again, uh, I was talking with you before we began about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and I, I want to just touch on that now because I think we humans forget we're living on this little blue planet in the, in the deep reaches of space and we are territorial animals. We're as territorial as dragonflies or rabbits or insects or horses. I mean, cats, uh, all other animals, um, fish, all have an anchor. They have a place that they defend. They have a place that re they retreat to to sleep that gives them shelter. And, you know, Abraham Maslow back in the 40s, I think it was, uh, talked mm -hmm. about this hierarchy of needs and we one of the most pr primal ones the very deep one is shelter yes uh along with food and and water and sleep and clothing and reproduction i mean without a place that we feel we're safe in uh it's very hard to feel higher levels of human experience such as love and belonging or esteem or this notion of self-actualization that doesn't mean you can't experience those things but it's much more difficult if your Absolutely. day is spent in the abject terror of trying to find your next mm -hmm. place to sleep um and a lot of people that don't have homes that are living on the streets one of the worst things they experience is they can't sleep because they're afraid of being attacked or robbed or whatever so the notion of home it's it's very very deep in human consciousness um and look at those cave paintings that uh, our, our ancestors were painting and scratching, you know, 50, 60,000 or more years ago. Way more than that probably in lots of other places. So it's a, it's a very deep need to have a safe place to, to live and to survive. Um, and the safety comes from that, uh, a place that's dependable and provides us with security and a sense that we can expect tomorrow to be a little bit more like today. Um, and that's where we create affiliation with our friends and family and our tribes and create a sense of connection. And from so, that, yeah. 
sorry, sorry, just just on that, Ian. So if I'm thinking about, you know, the office, that, that kind of um, traditional sense of the office, um, what, are, what are some of the ways in which that, that you know, my place identity has been uh, impacted? Um, because, you know, am I, because when you, particularly when you were talking about how people took away bricks from, you know, the, the, um, the, the Greyhound Hotel that wasn't there anymore from the kind of rubble, you know, are we actually even thinking about what bricks we want to take away from the office because that's in rubble right now too you know what is that and and then how does working from home impact our sense of safety at home as well because i think yeah. they they're really like to your point they're very deep questions they're very you know very existential questions uh, when i left my last major job where I'd spent eight years um, I brought home a garden gnome that someone had had on their desk and when they <laughs> left they left it behind and I have it in my house it reminds me of some great people that I work with for yeah um, but look that's an aside and I think not only is there place identity I mean uh, 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 but there's place dependence and that's we, we we evaluate places all the time based on how well we can achieve our needs in that place and whether that place and what those services are provided meet our expectations. And I think office environments offer us something of that. I mean, we're always weighing up whether a job, the content of the job, but also the culture around it and the 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 the, the, uh, the performance of the building. I mean, I used to get sick two or three times a year because the office buildings I worked in were so yes. badly functioning. They all the windows were sealed. They were full of nylon carpets. The air conditioning was poor. Everyone brought their bugs into work. Um, and so, you know, I loved the people that I worked with and I loved the content, but I didn't like the fact that I felt trapped in an aging repurposed office building that actually made me feel ill. And I think the green building revolution is part of that. Why yeah. shouldn't we have the right to fresh air and lots of natural light? Um, Absolutely. And, you know, in fact, that's, that's you know, just kind of going back to my own experience too. That is why I started Higher Spaces because I wanted a space where there is natural light and connection to nature and natural surfaces because I wanted to work in a place like that too, to your point. And so I wanted to offer that to other people. So it's so true. The other, the other thing is, and these things all interplay and there's always a sort of, it's like a lava lamp. There's always this uh, place to identity bouncing off place dependence and uh, colliding with place attachment and the other component, sense of community, where we, we go to feel like we belong, that we matter to each other. That's, that's the higher order of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where we experience self-actualization. But I mean... So office buildings, uh, it's so complex and fascinating because I guess cities have evolved, you know, in human civilization in the last few thousand years. Um, and they were based on the fact that we met all of our other hierarchies of needs through agriculture and forming more sedentary lives and, um, you know, building town centers that evolved and grew and blah, blah, blah. Um, the funny thing is about cities, uh, modern industrial cities were designed for 
typically men to travel in by trains, which were all designed like spokes yes. on a wheel. Everything moved into the city centre. It was where um, it was where the commercial activity of a society was performed, uh, often leaving women and children at home, where they were performing unpaid, unrecognised domestic labour. Amen. Yep. Um, but cities are much more than places to make money. They're actually places where people should be having an opportunity to experience all of the components of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but also these components of place, the identifying with a place, um, um, having this complex relationship with place, being involved in decisions that uh, protect the, the, the parts of places that we love, um, helping, helping places to allow as many people as possible to get what they need in that place, um, and then to form these emotional bonds to it and experience community, which is why, for example, the Metropolitan Plan for Melbourne that I had some involvement in writing, I helped to write the chapter on livable, healthy, livable neighbourhoods. And this concept of the 20-minute neighbourhood sort of came out of that based on what was happening in other places around the world. But the idea that even a city of 5 million, which is sprawling completely unsustainably as I speak um, the notion that you should be able to get everything that you need pretty much within a 20 minute active commute from where you live and by active commute we mean walking, public transport, cycling um, not driving your car but you should be able to get to a fulfilling local job you should be able to afford to live where you work, near where you work you should be able to experience village life where you can go and get the goods and services that you want. Um, you should be able to access fresh, affordable food, um, which you can get to and from easily. Um, you should be able to have access to public open space, green space, contact with nature that's so health-fulfilling. Um, you should be able to um, be able to walk everywhere that you need to. Uh, and a very important one is what we call social infrastructure or community infrastructure. And my colleagues at RMIT, especially Dr. Melanie Davenant and, and her team at the Healthy Livable Cities Group. So social infrastructure is the buildings and the services um, that we go to, to to achieve a certain service or experience a certain thing. Um, where I'm living in the country, in Kyneton, I can walk up the street to the post office, the supermarket, the bank, the doctor, uh, if I need to, um, there are dentists here as well, um, there's a fantastic swimming pool and gym complex, um, there's fantastic public open space, but in terms of social infrastructure, these are things like health services, education services, schools, um, higher education, lifelong learning community learning hubs where anyone can go, childcare, uh, community support services, arts and culture, which I think these are often removed when uh, they become, they're seen as expedient to an Yes, always. Model. And just look at the way that uh, the current government in Australia has not provided 
COVID support, financial support to artists. It's been dismal, yeah. Performers, as well as people in the education sector, in universities. That's a deliberate ideological position that those critical forms of social infrastructure do not matter in a world in which cities are just places to make money. Um, so social housing is another form of very important social infrastructure, um, employment services, public and community transport. All these things go to make a vibrant place. And funnily enough, the, the article you sent me about the way that Australia has these phenomenal vacancy rates. And in fact, in Melbourne, it's the, the vacancy rates in our capital city office buildings was 75% in June because we've been hammered by COVID. But as you said, when we began, in other cities, the vacancy rate is somewhere around 20% mark. But what, what are we going to do with all of these buildings, especially when, I mean, cities create their own identity, right? So uh, funnily enough, you know, I went to a conference on place years ago where some researcher gave all these slides about cities which offered really good uh, images for promoting tourism. So it was all about the skyline and how good it looked uh, in terms of packaging up a city for competition in the global tourist market. Um, so of course, Sydney performs really well because we've got the iconic Sydney Opera House and Harbour and Harbour Bridge. Melbourne is a it's far less of a place that has an iconic skyline. But what's iconic about it is the things, other things that attracted me to live here, which is this sense of intimacy and belonging. Absolutely. And neighbourhood vibrancy. Um, and the 20 minute neighbourhood concept is an attempt to promote that. Uh, but what's happened is, um, you know, we, you have the same developers saying, well, we can't possibly offer that in the outer suburbs until we have enough people. Um, but let's go back to the city. But I, I want you to say something first because I keep talking. That's okay, Ian. Look, thank you. I, I guess for me, you, I'm, I'm, a, I'm kind of nodding and agreeing with everything you're saying there. And absolutely. And I love the, you know, I love the idea of the 20 minute vibrant neighborhood. And I've been living that for a long time um, because that's what makes me happy as well. I love being in a neighborhood where, uh, and it's not that I don't like to travel. I mean, I, I'm a, you know, avid traveler all over Australia and internationally when we're allowed to, but it's not that. It's more that I love having that that connection to my neighborhood where I have everything I need and and I, I'm not um, commuting for hours um, to get anywhere and I'm not feeling that frustration. And I think, you know, the, the discussion around, particularly for CEOs around, you know, getting everyone back into the office post-COVID, I think that discussion has been too much of a dichotomy around either people work from home or they come back to the office or we have this kind of hybrid situation. Instead of thinking about how do we actually create um, this this infrastructure that you're talking about, how do we evolve our cities in a different way so that we are actually giving people that opportunity for that 20 20 minute you know kind of active neighborhood around them which means for example that you're not talking about sending people back to the office you're talking about having satellite sites everywhere and you know co-working the rise of co-working allows this we can do it today it's not a um it's not a figment of our imagination to give you an example 
Um, I'm working with an organization that is providing an app for, for CEOs and all they do is they give their, their employees an app and these employees can book a desk in all these different um, suburban hubs when they want a desk. And so suddenly you're not... Um, you're not you're giving people the choice that they want around flexibility, but you're not forcing people to create that office environment at home where maybe that's just not going to work for them. Um, but you're also not forcing people to go back to an office, back to a building that that doesn't have what they need in relation to uh, you know safety, but also maybe some of that kind of place identity that we've been talking about. So you know, my nirvana is where you have an organisation where you have different um, opportunities to connect with people in your neighborhood who also work for that organization at different times. It doesn't have to be, you know, thousands of people commuting into a central location. So I I think that we have to think differently about the future. uh, And this is the opportunity to do it. And, And to your point, it does involve government it does involve our you know developers it does involve the kind of you know the kind of way we see the uh, planning for our built environment and that's the challenge I guess um, the, the, the piece you sent me about what's happening uh, around Australia with um, COVID is they're talking about the emergence of the suburban economy and I actually think that's a fantastic opportunity to actually create the 20 minute neighborhood concept everywhere uh, with this notion that Employment needs to be factored into that. One of the ironic things about the 20-minute neighbourhood concept that I struggled with was that employment was kind of edged out of the conversation uh, because there was still this sense that people had to travel into Melbourne to, to for their work. And, of course, COVID's blown that out of the water. Yes. Um, and, I, again, there's this very fascinating um, discussion online and in the community called The Rights to the City, and it's about social equity and people having the right to experience, I guess, Maslow's hierarchy of needs wherever they are. And the livability concept is part of that because when we start mapping how well cities and neighbourhoods perform in terms of, um, you know, food, transport, walkability, housing, open space, employment, social infrastructure, they vary differently, vastly differently from one neighbourhood to the next. Um, and it's interesting because Melbourne, for example, is our capital city. It has its own identity. Um, people people think about Melbourne as this amazing cultural hub and a, a place for sport and um, a place to experience neighbourhood life, which is very, very true. Um, but it also does have one of those iconic skylines full of gleaming towers. And our last planning minister signed off on 80 of those damn things um, which are actually threatening the very sense of intimacy that became part of Melbourne's iconic attraction as a city but I think uh, what's happening now with this rise of the suburban economy and working from home is that we have a vast amounts of empty <laughs> empty office space that no one thought about when they were busy uh doing their their deals to build yet another office tower so i think i guess for me there are going to be some discussions about what to do with these brand new buildings that are sitting empty but also what to do about i think i think one of the great things about melbourne it still does have a lot of older buildings from the gold rush era which um 
actually provide wonderful opportunities for startup businesses and artist studios and people working as artisans. And uh, there's a very famous building in in the centre of t- Melbourne called the Nicholas Building. This rabbit warren of an old of an old building, uh, which had the same lady working in the elevator for about fifty years. Oh, um, did you love that? <laughs> Uh, and I, funnily enough, it's just been sold, and there are questions about whether that rabbit warren hive of activity is is going to be preserved. Um, just around the corner in Flinders Lane is Ross House, which is another rabbit warren full of small NGO, small built, small organisations. Um, there are lots of these old buildings that are thriving hubs of innovation. Um, so I guess one of the questions is can we maintain that and maybe bring some of that to some of our newer buildings, which were never designed for that sort of activity? In fact, one of the things that COVID has shown us is that we all despise open plan hell. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I certainly did. I mean, how the heck do you get any work done when you're having to deal with all of those unwanted, uh, interruptive noises and people passing by and etc etc um i think working from home i know it has its own challenges especially during covid when people are trying to maintain a household with dependents and children whatever but um when you get that sweet spot where you can actually work from home uninterrupted it's amazing how much work you get done um and you can actually probably get twice as much done working from home on a good day than you could do in an open plan office. So and think- we've, we've seen that. We've seen how productivity has not decreased during this time. And I think, but I think to your point, we do need to think about repurposing some of those shared spaces and having different activities. And, and, and I love the idea, and I've always lived with, um, through, you know, through this principle of bringing your whole self to work. And that includes having a whole range of activities in those shared buildings. And, and you know, so bringing the community in in the evening when, when business is done, for example, and having different purposes, um, particularly more social purposes for those buildings so that, that they're places where people congregate and there's a, a kind of diversity to, to the um, the reasons they do that. And so, but, but we have run out of time, Ian, so we could keep talking, I know. <laughs> But, more points, I know, I know. Let's do let's do another conversation soon. I just wanted to thank you, Ian, so much. We you've we, we, we sort of went through quite a few references. I'll make sure that they're all in the show notes so that people can kind of click through and have a read and have a look at some of the things um, you know that you've been referring to. And um, and in particular, um, we would love to hear from listeners about their own experience of place and how how that's working for them right now. So thank you very much, Ian. Um, Have a wonderful day. And I'm sure we will be here again very soon. So we'll talk soon. Thanks a lot.